welcome to my first ever podcast, Woman by Definition. I'm Kelly J. My first guest is Brendan O'Neill. He's the editor of Spiked. He also writes for The Spectator. He's also the host of The Brendan O'Neill Show, which I have had the pleasure of being on. Two collections of his essays have been published, A Duty to Offend and Anti-Woke. The Telegraph describes him as one of Britain's sharpest social commentators, while The Guardian says he's a sub Danny Dyer intellectual wind-up merchant. Welcome, Brendan. Welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. Hi. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about um, is why when I said to friends who are feminists that I was meeting you in Manhattan, they were aghast. What have you done to upset feminists, Brendan? I have no idea. Well, actually, I do really. It's um, I'm I've been critical of feminism for quite a long time, um, and people seem to think that that means you are critical of women's equality and women's freedom and all that stuff, which is completely untrue. What I'm really critical of is new forms of feminism, which are, in my view, quite censorious, sometimes quite anti-men, um, relativistic. Uh, a bit weird um, and I, th I do think feminism has lost the plot and it's not just feminism I think all sorts of political movements have lost the plot I think Marxism has lost the plot I think the left has lost the plot um, so it, it, I don't single out feminism for that criticism I just think that the first wave of feminism was a wonderful development for humankind the second wave of feminism was a wonderful development for humankind the third and fourth waves, not so much. I think that's when we entered a realm where feminism started to become a bit um, uh, quite censorious, sometimes a bit shrill. I know that's a difficult criticism to make of a women's movement um, and uh, a little bit misanthropic. And I think its, it's view of patriarchal society became... Uh, a, a bit um, unsustainable, unconvincing, and sometimes a bit authoritarian. Right, okay. I think that's a, a fair criticism. Um, I mean, I feel what happened with feminism in the second wave is motherhood was completely um, forgotten in any part of the movement and family. And it was almost like in order to be equal to men, we had to become like men. Is, is that an observation you've made? Um, I think that's part of it. I think there was a real um, a kind of a view of motherhood that was quite demeaning sometimes and would look upon women who had children as being, you know, somehow perhaps co-opted by the patriarchy. I think a lot of these problems emerged in, the, in 1980s feminism when, um, you know, the obsession with the patriarchy became a little bit of a conspiracy theory. The idea that there were there was this all-powerful movement of men who were dominating womankind and forcing women to make choices that went against their own best interests. For mm. example, by choosing jobs they apparently shouldn't be doing, by making them choose motherhood, by making them think they had to be feminine and they had to re raise children and all these things. And, and so you ended up in a situation where women who made those choices could quite easily be looked upon as women who had been co-opted and corrupted by patriarchal society and by patriarchal pressure. So I think the more that the patriarchy view became a, a, a kind of conspiracy theory about how society is organized, the more that it became not just anti-men, but sometimes anti-women and women, some women were seen as having made the wrong choice for their life because they had internalized misogyny or because they had been got at in some way by these patriarchal um, structures. So that's, it's really in the 1980s, I think, uh, that feminism becomes a bit anti-sex, anti-men, anti-motherhood, anti-fun, and all these other things, which if you go back to the feminists of the early 1900s and then the 1960s and 1970s, they were much more in favor of those things. They were particularly in favor of choice. They were particularly mm. in favor of autonomy and women having control and freedom in their lives, but they didn't make moral judgments about the choices that women made. And I think that's where feminism down the line went a bit wrong. Yeah, although I'd say society now is very much very pro-sex and I think that's very harmful to women generally. I think we went very, I think we went wrong. Sexual liberation somehow doesn't feel quite so liberated when it gets to its 
it's um conclusion it's logical conclusion which is you know sex is sex is not the same for for men and women and i wonder if we went a little bit wrong when we decided that it was um so what should women call what should women as a collective call themselves if they recognize things that happen to women that maybe don't happen to men should they should they still call themselves feminists um, i don't have a problem with the term at all and even if i did who would care to be honest um <laughs> I, I like the term women's liberation i like the term mm. women's movement i i have i think because feminism has become a bit of a toxic brand I prefer the term women's liberation, which is a bit more old fashioned. It's got the word liberation mm. in there, which is quite a, a nice word. And also it, it mentions women because women do have um, particular issues and problems that men don't. So I'm perfectly open to the possibility that a movement uh, focused on women is still necessary yeah. um, in various areas of life. So that's absolutely fine. I just think feminism has become, you know, I was very interested in surveys that have taken place over the past couple of years, which say that um, not that many people call themselves feminists now, but vast majorities of people believe that men and women should be equal, which I think is really interesting because that means that in a lot of people's minds, feminism doesn't necessarily mean female equality anymore um, because people because people are in favour of female and female equality. You know, the vast majority of people you talk to think that women should have the exact same opportunities as men and then it's up to them to decide what to do. Um, mm. Most people think that, you know, apart from, you know, perhaps some older, very old fashioned people don't think that, but most people do. Um, and I think it's interesting that people hold on to that view of equality, but don't call themselves feminists. So they recognize that there's been a rupture, I think, between um, the meaning, uh, between what feminism means and what female mm. equality represents. So I think in terms of what women call themselves, yeah, it's really down to the women's movement itself. Right. But I think, but I would, one thing I would say is that I really am against this idea of women being a class. And this is an argument I have with feminists so mm. often. I have, I have witnessed one of those arguments. Yeah, I have a real problem with that because I just don't think women are a class. And within womankind, there are numerous different classes. There are some women who exploit working class women because they are bosses or they are capitalists or they are company directors. Um, and the idea that they have a shared class interest with the women that they exploit, this is me going a bit Marxist now, but the That's idea right. that those, those very wealthy, powerful women who run big corporations, the idea that they have a shared class interest with the woman who cleans their office for a, a minimum wage, it is I think a real that's that really pollutes the meaning of class politics. So um, I, I sometimes think that feminists borrow, seek to borrow the moral authority of class politics to push forward a particular agenda that's not really driven by class. Yeah, well, that would that would lead straight into why some uh, people say that feminism has invited transactivism because if you talk about feminism borrowing. The language of class politics then transactivists certainly borrow the language of feminism oh yeah um, and maybe maybe that's an invitation that i mean personally i want to get to the bottom of why some men think that we women have brought on uh, have brought about this whole transactivism and we made it so i completely disagree with that because i think transactivism is absolutely nothing to do with class or civil rights or any of those things, I think it's purely to do with uh, men's entitlement and fetish. <laughs> so I'm not going to agree with that. But I'm really intrigued by the the routes that that people think that's taken. And I I think you just hit the nail on the head on one of them that the feminism borrowed class politics. Mm, yes, and I think uh, I absolutely agree with you that trans the trans movement is trying to use feminism to push an agenda that has nothing to do with women and is, in fact is quite harmful to women, mm. um, which is this idea that you can become a woman simply by declaring it and then you should have the right to enter all sorts of women's spaces. I think that's a fundamentally misogynistic idea. Mm. I think the idea that you can become a woman um, without having lived any of those experiences is misogynistic because it reduces woman womanhood to just this feeling 
just this kind of this item of clothing you can put on it kind of really demeans the the biological historical relational nature of womanhood so i think it's fundamentally misogynistic from the get-go the idea that yeah. you can the idea that these people are literally women i mean that's what we are now being told that, that you can have a penis and a beard and uh, have you can be a 35 year old man who's had all the various positions men hold and then you can become a woman and the, mm -hmm. and you are literally a woman i mean that is just deeply misogynistic uh, as an idea in itself and then furthermore there is just this notion that um as soon as they declare it that they should have the access to all spaces you know women's yeah, political yeah. party shortlists changing rooms toilets um swimming pools anything that they want and so it's it's a complete invasion of women's spaces and it's a complete it's a complete undermining of what it means to be a woman it's a complete yeah. invasion of women's spaces and it is an elevation of um the you know in my view my personal view the, the peculiar desires of certain men to be associated with um the idea of womanhood it's it's an elevation of their peculiar desires above the needs and interests of women so it's fundamentally anti-woman and and i presume anti-feminist well i will agree with you wholeheartedly as you well know um with the the trans stuff do you i mean you've written about woke politics do you think the trans is the absolute pinnacle because it is just a big fat lie it doesn't just it doesn't just it's not just identity politics but it's it's the lie of woke and identity politics do you think that's the the most like extreme example we have of identity politics Yes, I think it is the pinnacle of all of that nonsense. And it is really speaks to the narcissism of woke politics, this, this, the, um, the, the constant need for self-validation, the idea that the whole world should revolve around you and your own perception of yourself. I mean, it is just achingly narcissistic. It's, it's breathtakingly narcissistic, this notion that, you know, I, if, if a man wants to go around wearing women's clothes and calling himself a woman, that's his business. That's not I don't care. But the notion that the rest of the world has to kowtow to that and has to accept that he's a woman and accept that he has the right to access all these spaces is just woke politics taken to its bizarre and quite psychotic conclusion, which is yeah. the idea that you are what you say you are, regardless of biological reality, social reality, and regardless of what everyone else thinks. So it's it's so it's authoritarian, it's arrogant. And it really speaks to that kind of very needy, desperate politics of recognition that is a central part of the woke agenda, which is that, you know, you all have to recognize my identity. Mm. Um, and it's a real problem. And, and the great problem we've had in the UK over the past couple of years, which you know a lot about, is, is the struggle to clarify or ideally get rid of the Gender Recognition Act, because yeah. what that would do is put into law um, the necessity of all um, people and institutions to recognize the assumed identity of certain individuals and and that would be as you you have said yourself before that would be forcing people to lie that would be forcing people to mm. to accept something and to say something that they don't think is true which is that this man is a woman so um i think it is the pinnacle of woke politics it really sums up the dead end, the, the horrible rabbit hole that is identity politics, where you just go down further and further and further until you reach a point where you can literally have men with beards saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm a lesbian. And it's it, it's just deranged. It's utterly deranged. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> anti-woman, it's anti-lesbian, and it's anti-reason. Yeah. So where do you think it came from? Like, not just the trans stuff, but all of this identity you know is it a void in our society are we missing out on religion and a greater purpose have we stopped having communities like where does this come from um well that's the million dollar question i think it's been growing for quite a while i really think a lot of it comes from the corrosion of the old left see this is where you know i agree with you that it is a bit of a stretch to say that feminism is responsible for trans genderism um, and I actually think transgenderism is fundamentally hostile to the goals of feminism which is female women's rights and women's equality um, 
But I do think one of the reasons I've been critical of feminism in recent years is because I do think it became an identitarian movement and it did become a movement that was feminism is identity politics. Now, we can say that some form of identity politics is good and some is bad. I'm very much open to that suggestion. You know, you could argue, for example, that the civil rights movement in America in the 1960s, you could make a reasonable argument that that was a form of identity politics because it was about one identity group in society securing their rights. And so it was about their interests and their rights and their desire for um, an improvement in their social conditions. So it's a form of identity politics, but it's a form of identity politics that fundamentally wants to override identity politics. So the, the important thing about the civil rights movement is that it says, look, us black people are treated unequally and we want to rectify that so that we are the same as everyone else. Yeah. And But what happens with identity politics as it moves into the 70s and particularly the 1980s is that it becomes an end in itself. So it's no longer about overcoming um, oppression and structural barriers to your inclusion in society. And it becomes much more about a never ending celebration of your identity. And so you have this fragmentation of all these social groups. You have suddenly you have a, a, a permanent black movement, a permanent Asian movement, a permanent women's movement. Um, and it's not about reaching an end point where all human beings enjoy equal opportunity, but it becomes almost an end in itself. And I think feminism did go slightly down that road and became a, a very much an identitarian movement rather than a movement about um, autonomy and equality. So, mm. uh, so in that sense, I can see some kind of link between what became a feminism and then the rise of things like transgenderism. But I think fundamentally, in my view, identity politics comes from the failures of the left. You know, identity politics to me is, I know people think it is a left-wing politics, but in my view, it is. it speaks fundamentally to the failure of the left-wing project because the left traditionally was about universalism. It was about um, what people had in common it was about a class struggle, for example. It was about um, transforming society so that everyone had greater opportunities and greater autonomy. And the failure of that project, particularly in the mid-20th century, means that you, what, you, what it gives rise to is a politics that is not about universalism, but is very sectional, very divisive, and basically everyone splits off into their own groups. So I think that's really the origins of identity politics, and it's just become more and more pronounced over the past few years. And it's such a great, uh, great celebratory movement now, isn't it? The whole woke thing and identity <laughs> politics. It's so fantastic. I recently went to a hate speech uh, conference, a Westminster forum on hate speech. And to say that it was frightening is an understatement. Um, and you're an absolutist, aren't you, on yeah. speech, a free speech absolutist. What does that mean? I'm a free speech absolutist, which means I don't believe in any form of censorship whatsoever, including libel laws. Um, I think. Um, in my view, the only form of speech it is legitimate to restrict or punish is speech that could reasonably give rise to imminent violence. And I think imminent is a really important word there because we're so often told that, you know, the Bible causes people to turn violent or violent movies cause you to commit a crime. And I don't accept any of that because I think that completely undermines the free will of the individual who has seen or read something and then decided to act on it. And I think they are responsible, not the thing they saw or the thing they read. So I mean, imminent violence in the sense that if you're in a close knit situation and one person says to another person, let's go and kill that guy. That's yeah. a situation where speech is speech is not it's not an expression of an opinion. It's simply the use of speech to commit an act of violence. That's in my view, that's the only time it's reasonable for speech to be criminalized. I think in every other situation, we have to err on the side of allowing opinion and thoughts and ideas and and everything else to, to go as freely as possible. And the best way to tackle stuff that we don't like or which is horrible or hateful or racist or anti-Semitic or misogynistic is with more speech, is, is to tackle it in the realm of public debate, to expose it, to argue it down, to ridicule it, to make fun of it. 
um, that really is the only way to do it because as soon as you call on the authorities or anyone else to censor opinions you don't like, then you have just given a green light to censorship. And censorship never ends with um, clamping down on the opinions you hate. It will always come for the opinions you like as well. This is another mistake um, I think feminists fail to learn because um, a lot of feminists over the past few decades have have often called for censorship um, of, you know, one example is um, Dapper Laughs. Dapper Laughs, the, the comedian who makes sexist jokes and is a bit of a lad, a bit of a white boy, and mm. he, he does, his humour is a bit debauched and everything else. And so he was censored from speaking or performing on some campuses over the past four or five years. And feminists were often at the forefront either of calling for that censorship or certainly supporting it when it happened. You fast forward four or five years to right now, and who's being censored? Feminists. And mm. there being feminists who are, I, don't, I know you don't like this phrase, but feminists who are trans-skeptical. <laughs> trans um, and they're being censored for the same reason, even though they are implacably different people to Dapper Laughs, they are being censored for the same reason. The idea that their words are dangerous, they would make people feel unsafe, they would make people feel demeaned. So I think we've go always got to be incredibly careful before we give the green light to censorship because yeah. it's, it's all fun and games when you're censoring your enemy. But uh, even while you're doing that, you are creating the logic for your own censorship. And I think that's a that's something that feminists have to have a really, in particular, have to have a really serious reckoning with. You know, the role that they played in saying that certain words and ideas are too dangerous for public expression. Mm -hmm. And now the same is being said to them. So it's really important that we defend all speech, even if we think it's really horrible. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think... Um... It's not just feminists that have done this. I've seen comedians uh, who sort of criticised Count Dankula then mm. also being silenced. And I, I think it's quite interesting when it happens to people. Um, I just hope I haven't done that level of hypocrisy, but I have no idea because I am a raging hypocrite most of the time. But um, I, I think we all are, unless we, I, I don't remember my positions on stuff. But what did you think? Did you see the recent, uh, is it Billy Joe Saunders? Did you see his recent, he uploaded a video of him punching, it was supposed to be funny, and he was punching a punch bag. And he basically said, we're all locked up. If your missus mm. gives you a bit of lip, punch her. And then he, and he didn't just punch, you know, he punched the, um, punch bag and then he and he said and when she's sort of blindsided and she not she's sort of asking herself did he really just do that then you do an uppercut and it was far too graphic a description for him not to have more familiarity with that scenario than maybe just talking about it it was just there was something very sinister about it and he's just had his license suspended by the boxing federation because he's a world middleweight boxer or something um so is is that a censorship or is that a consequence of a bad action yeah that's not necessarily censorship because that's a really stupid thing to do mm. and the boxing federation could quite reasonably say that he, he he's bringing them into disrepute mm. so if someone at spiked did something like that i might say to them sorry you're sacked and and because that's an extreme thing to do um I, I think a lot of people think recognize that he was joking, um, and that's certainly his defense. But it's such a ridiculous, stupid joke to make, and not one, and especially at a time when lots of people are actually concerned about the possibility that women during the lockdown will be stuck. Some women will be stuck in houses with men that they don't want to be stuck in a house with. So it's a bit of a serious issue. Um, yeah. So it's a it's a it's an inappropriate joke, and it's a, an ill-timed joke. I would absolutely defend his freedom of speech to make that joke. So I think he should have the right to go onto his platform and, and make that joke. But then I think if his, if the Boxing Federation or, or a company that employs him or someone else says, um, you know, listen, you've just made a video instructing people on how to beat up a woman, which could cause us embarrassment and therefore we're not going to be associated with you anymore. That's fine. That's 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 quite different to, for example, um, this is so different, but the Maya for starter case, for example, 
who has been deprived of certain forms of work simply because she holds an opinion that is entirely reasonable and is held by millions of people and is is correct so that so it's not like that that's a situation where someone has been um, potentially financially punished and publicly shamed for holding a particular opinion um but i do think there are some instances where someone does something that's so ridiculous and so stupid that their workplace or their federation or work, whatever it is could quite reasonably say now nah, you went over the line so we're going to be not associated with you so that is not a censorship thing in my view all right okay good Good, we agree. Um, I always call myself a, a free speech absolutist, but I don't, I don't know because I see something. I see things like porn, certain types of porn in particular. Oh, no. but, uh, I'm not going to go into the porn thing with you because I'm not well versed enough to to match <laughs> your arguments. And uh, I, but I would see. I'm not. I may not broadcast this, but I would see the porn thing as actually ultimately harmful because in the end what the the overuse of porn particularly affects men directly with performance but also i think it i think it cultivates attitudes against women uh in mm -hmm. society which i don't think is healthy but i well i think i i actually agree with you that porn i think this the porn saturation that we're living through is very harmful i think it's harmful of young men in particular, also young women. Um, I think it is, it, it's warping uh, the idea of sexual intimacy. I think it's giving people a very twisted view of what sexual intimacy is about. Um, my only argument would be that um, censorship is not the best response to, I, so I agree it's a profound problem. Um, and I, I wrote a piece saying that, I wrote a piece a few, a couple of years ago, agreeing with Pamela Anderson, because Pamela Anderson thinks there is far too much pornography now and is very worried about its impact on people. And I said, she's right. I, I just think censorship is not the best response because you would then be empowering the state or someone else to determine what kind of images and films people can create. And I just think, once again, that opens the floodgates to potentially other forms of um, uh, social control over the creation of images and it, it's an unfortunate fact that some people want to make images or films that in, involve having um, real sex so uh, that's my only concern I agree with feminists who say that porn is having a corrosive impact on society but I disagree with them when they say that the res the solution is to ban it or censor it or clamp down on it right. because I think it would open the floodgates to other forms of problematic control of public images and film and everything else so what do you think that we should do or what do you think a solution would be to to massive great big uh companies like Pornhub who repeatedly there are uh videos including underage girls or trafficked girls and women and probably boys um and uh paedophilia so child rape do you think that the government is being a bit weak when it comes to not penalising or shutting down Pornhub, even if we don't ban porn? I think, um, well, child trafficking and child rape are crimes. Uh, that's not that's got nothing to do with freedom of speech. So if someone's been trafficked or if a child has been uh, sexually interfered with at any level, those are serious criminal offences which should be punished with the full force of the law. So that's, you know, people often say, when I say I'm a free speech absolutist, people will sometimes say, oh, but what about child pornography? Which is so unbelievably ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not making that argument, I promise. <laughs> I know you're not, but I, I mean, um, particularly leftists all the time who are so um, fundamentally against the idea of freedom of speech that when they hear it, when they hear those words, freedom of speech, all they can think of is children being raped. I mean, that's really, that's literally the first <laughs> thing that comes to their minds. It's so depraved. Um, but the point is that there's no such thing as freedom of speech for child pornography. I think it's really worth making that point because the, the creation of child pornography is itself a, a grave, grave crime. This is not a, a, the creation of a, a, an idea or a story or yeah. image. Or it's nothing. It's just the creation of a crime. So the so there's there's no free speech for child pornography. There's no free speech for trafficking people. Um, I think there ought to be free speech for people for consenting adults who want to make dirty movies. Um, and the problem, but the you know, 
my most controversial view of all time is that I think um, I think the 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 rise and rise of porn. I don't actually think it was an in, an inevitable aspect of internet culture. I think the rise and rise of porn actually um, speaks to a crisis of intimacy in society. And I think, the, particularly among younger people, there's a real risk attached to the idea of intimacy. It's it's seen as being fraught with danger. Um, young men, in particular, are increasingly unsure about how to approach young women for various reasons. And I think feminism may have contributed to that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, the idea that chatting someone up at your, in your office is is sexual harassment or asking someone if they want to drink in a, in a student bar is, is a form of sexual pressure. It, it, that's given rise to a lot of confusion among young men and a lot of um, trepidation among young women in particular. And I think it has given rise. There's a cultural crisis of intimacy and people feel insecure in approaching members of the opposite sex or members of the same sex mm. and, and and I think one of the consequences of that is a turn towards individualistic gratification for want of a better phrase um, where people uh, use pornography as a, as a kind of substitute for the things that they might have done in the past which is go out on the town get off with people regret it the next day but move on so mm. I think the more that the more that sex is problematized or seen as something a bit dangerous the more people fall into the porn trap of saying well i'll just get off watching this so i think there is well, a, I think they also get them young don't they they get them young yeah, and they fire their brains and yeah and they feed on insecurities i think firstly people are drawn to pornography especially younger people out of a sense of insecurity they don't they don't do the things people did in the past which is go out and hang around and try and have sex um so they they move in there because of insecurity and then and then the porn world feeds on their insecurities um and gives them this you know completely unrealistic and and pretty nasty image of what sex is like and then that causes problems so i have no doubt that it causes problems i just think that um if we censor it Firstly, it will just go underground and get worse. It will get even worse than it is. Can you imagine what would exist if porn was a secret underground activity? It would be horrific. So it would go underground. It wouldn't go away. It would go underground. And we wouldn't resolve the problem of what's causing such a vast interest in porn to begin with, which I think is a social, a bit of a social crisis around interpersonal relationships. So I think we've got to tackle that side of it mm. rather than censoring the horrible stuff coming out of the Internet. It is like injecting sexual serotonin, though, into your home through via little handheld devices. I do think that's that's what porn has done. And loads of the free content is very short and very, um, I, I assume, that it's not short videos of a couple of people kissing. I assume the short videos are sort of very rapid, uh, peak climax and then end. And I mean, so I think... Yeah, yeah. It, it really, when I think about it, it does really horrify me. I remember when I was, I mean, everyone of, every man of my age has got this same story, but it's absolutely true, which is, you know, between the ages of 12 or 18, you would see a porno mag at least once. Someone would have one hidden under a tree somewhere or hidden in their bedroom, and you'd look at it, and, and most of the time you'd look at it and think, God, that's actually quite tragic and scary. I don't really know what this is all about. And that's the only porn you ever saw. The only porn, the only porn you ever saw, you'd see it once or twice in your teenage years. You didn't see anything else. There was no, there was no ability whatsoever to access it. And I do think that was preferable because now you have a situation where 14 and 15 year old boys can can watch it all day long. Yeah. Um, and that is genuinely, genuinely a serious social problem. So I would never want to underestimate this, the scale of the problem. I just think we have to be careful with our solutions to it. Um, yeah. I think we need tougher parental controls, which won't solve the problem in itself, um, because kids are cleverer than parents when it comes to the internet. Um, and we need um, a, a, a better society and a better culture and a better uh, atmosphere around interpersonal relations mm. which would go back to a situation where you know masturbating to porn would be seen as a really sad thing to do I think yeah. we've got to try and combat it culturally rather than legally that would be my 
preference, but it's it's not easy. Well, I don't know. I, I'm a parent of teenagers. My oldest is 18. And from what I can see of teenagers is they uh, are not my own kids, other kids. They don't meet each other. They don't talk to each other in real life. They don't interact with people that aren't the same as them. Uh, so they're not in situations where they're making mistakes. They're not in situations where, you know, at 15, I would go out walking fields and you might have a bottle of diamond white mm. <laughs> and you would make some mistakes and you'd have all of these practice mistakes that you'd make growing up yeah. and that also included boyfriend that would include sort of slow way into an adult relationship not straight to having sex with somebody but it would be like a finding out about somebody and it'd be all those things and I think that's what's also missing and why mm. women and men can't uh, have these interpersonal relationships it's because they have had no sort of adolescent practice yeah. of what making a mistake feels like. I completely agree. I mean, if you think back to the culture when we were growing up, I mean, you, you, it would be a mistake to romanticise it, but, you know, notes passed at school or the frisson of flirting or... Um, first base, second base, you know, these things which could take, you know, months and months or years. Mm. And there was a sense of excitement to that and there was a sense of discovery. Uh, I'm sure a lot of a lot of young people don't have that sense anymore because they've all, by the time they're 14, they've already seen people having all sorts of sex. Yeah. So it, I, I think that does have a very detrimental impact on how they approach relationships and how they mm. express themselves and how they communicate. And you know they're more they're now as we know they're more likely to send each other naked pictures and um uh, sexting and all that stuff so yeah. yeah so it has a very dangerous impact but i also think one of the other things that i'm worried about is the the leaking of pornog pornographic culture into popular culture um mm. so if you you know i'm a huge fan of rihanna but you know let's not ignore the fact that if she's had songs where she's talking about whips and chains and um you know they don't wear very much clothes and and kids watch this stuff all the time and yeah. um I, I think we sometimes forget how unusual that is you know when we were 13 yeah. and 14 years old we were not watching um women half naked women whipping themselves on the back that that was not an image that kids saw they were watching i don't know innocent pop videos or cartoons or whatever else it might be so that shift is also worrying. The, the, um, well, lap dancing was seedy, wasn't it? Strip yeah. clubs and lap dancing, they, it was a seedy thing. It wasn't like a glamorous thing where uh, a pop star pretends to do it at the, yeah. in the middle of um, whatever the, what is it, the World Series in America, whatever yeah. that big game is. Yeah, the World <laughs> Series or on X Factor or all sorts of places where um, you now see the kind of things that in the past you would have seen on TV after midnight. So. Mm. Um, so that is a problem too. It's kind of leaked into popular culture. So I do think, I, I completely agree it's a serious problem. Um, I just think we have to be careful how we deal with it because I, I'm so reluctant to give the authorities any more power over the creation of imagery. Um, and I also think that there are there've got to be better ways. There've got to be ways in which society more broadly can draw kids in particular away from this depraved culture and open their eyes to, you know, a better way of approaching these issues. What do you think is going to happen with this coronavirus? What do you think the knock-on effect will be on things as shallow as um, identity politics? Do you think it will make a difference? I've been thinking about that because um, I've heard many different arguments on this. I've heard some people say that it's the end of identity politics because who, and, and over the past two weeks, we haven't heard anyone talk about you know the right of a man to go into a woman's toilet uh you know those things have fallen by the wayside because i think most people realize i mean many people recognize that they were stupid campaigns anyway but i think <laughs> even some of the people who championed them might now be realizing that it, it was a ridiculous waste of energy so a lot of that will shift so i've heard some people say that this could represent um a, a real an end point for identity politics and for the frivolous ridiculous nature of the kind of a, a identitarian project but then i've heard others say that um 
it was such a strong movement. It was such a, uh, not in terms of numbers, but certainly in terms, of, in terms of influence within the cultural elite and the political class and even amongst, you know, the police force and other uh, sections mm. of society. It was such a strong movement that it, 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 it will probably survive and it might come back in new forms. I was really interested to see that the police put out a statement the other day saying, listen, we all know that there's a coronavirus pandemic. But if you're a victim of a hate crime or if you heard something offensive, we're still here for you. And so that's a, bit, a bit of a reminder that this stuff might hang on for a bit longer. And I think that is a bit of a worry. Well, maybe not when the police are marching on the streets and all the non-uniform officers have to be back in uniform and they're having to break up people and tell them to stay inside their houses, maybe. I mean, I'm sure the police are going to misgender a fair few people as they tell them to get off, get off the streets. But I, my personal view is that I think it will, I think it will do two things. Number one, it will stop the fight back against it and people may think that it's gone away. Mm. And so there, there may well be a push for hidden sort of policies and agendas being pushed through. Uh, number two, I have faith in the fact that Dominic Cummings probably is not into identity politics in any great um with any great passion so i think under this government i think it might disappear but i think in six months time when we look at the country um people everyone's going to be at least a couple of uh degrees of separation away from somebody that died somebody who was seriously ill somebody who lost their livelihood somebody who lost their house um you know those things are going to happen and i think for many of us that will be a reset on what we think is important. Uh, and certainly in schools, schools are going to be worried about whether or not their kids are going to get through the GCSEs who have missed six months of school, whether or not they're going to get through the A-levels, whether or not universities are actually going to keep functioning because they're going to have lost so much of their finances. So I think maybe the unravel, my hope is the unravel will start because people are going to think we don't have time for a beliefs and values circle time on pronouns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have to yeah. make sure that these kids can get their maths GCSE. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe. But yeah. wider than wider than identity politics, how do you see this coronavirus pandemic affecting us culturally? Like, I know it's difficult to predict, but what what's your gut feeling on this? I'm really worried. I'm worried about the world after the coronavirus because I think we've gone I think we've gone a bit mad. I mean, I think it is an incredibly serious health challenge, particularly for older people and people who are medically vulnerable. Um, it's probably the worst pandemic we faced for decades. So this is a very serious problem that requires a lot of resources to try and tackle mm -hmm. it. But I think um I think it's a, my personal view is that it's a mistake to shut down society. I think the closure, I think the bringing economic life to a standstill is going to prove catastrophic. Um, millions of people are going to be hurt by this. And if it goes on for very long, <coughs> we're going to see millions of people out of work, millions of people impoverished. Um, there are some expert voices who are being ignored in the mainstream, but there are some expert voices who are saying, um, a long-term economic shutdown will be worse for human health than the virus itself, because we know that serious recession leads to shorter life expectancies, a rise in suicides, um, all sorts of health problems, alcoholism, uh, and various other things, which will have an extraordinarily detrimental impact on people's lives. So I'm not sure we're making the right choice. If I'm proven wrong, I'll be delighted. But at the moment, I think a more surgical strike against coronavirus probably would have been wiser. So, for right. example, you know, isolating those who are most vulnerable, but in such a way that they are still able to associate with each other, but protecting the most vulnerable as much as possible while allowing the rest of society to carry on in order that economic life continues and, and society doesn't go down the chute. You know, there are already rumblings in Italy because the lockdown in Italy has been going on for quite a while. People are running out of food. People ha haven't got enough food to eat. And um, people are now uh, raiding supermarkets. They have no money. I mean, there's lots of serious problems taking place. There, there's also a lot of political disturbances in China um, where the lockdown went on for two months and people were running out of food and they couldn't afford food because the prices kept going up. So there's only so much time you can keep society locked down before we encounter shortages 
and economic strife and various other problems. So uh, I think it has to uh, it has to be a short term um, measure. And I think if it goes on too long, there won't be much for us to go back to. And I, I know that sounds a bit depressing, but that's how I feel about it at the moment. So I'm worried that we will come out of this um, a, a bit uh, bruised and beaten and not mm. quite sure. Um, lots of people won't know what they're going to do for a job. Lots of people won't know how they're going to make ends meet. So I've got a lot of concerns on that front. So my preferred option in the whole coronavirus crisis would be a more surgical strike against the disease and allowing people as much as is humanly possible to carry on working, carry on producing, carry on taking taking part in society. So at the moment, I'm not sure we're doing the right thing. So do you think that Boris was a bit slow with with like the initial for God's sake, don't go out. Or do you think actually, because Sweden's trying, Sweden's mm. not doing any of this, is it? So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Yeah, Sweden and the Netherlands are still going down the route. I mean, herd immunity is such an awful phrase. I prefer the phrase um, community resilience. So they're going down that route of, you know, recognizing that you can't actually stop a virus like this. You know, the problem in China at the moment is they've had lockdown in, in Hubei province in particular for a couple of months. Um, they're now reopening things slowly. But the virus hasn't gone away. All it takes is for one infected person to come out of lockdown and it spreads again. So those people who are saying, look, you can't stop a virus like this. You can only um, allow it to take its course while developing treatments and developing a vaccine. There's a lot of truth in that. Um, of course, if you say that, everyone will say you're a callous, horrible person who wants old people to die. When in fact, what people like me are thinking about is the economic consequences of closing down society entirely, which I think will be catastrophic on people's actual health, not simply on their ability to make a living. So um, uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if Sweden and the Netherlands are right or if Britain, France and Italy are right. And I think, and I don't think we will know the answer to that question for quite a few years, actually. I don't even think no. we'll know. We won't know over the next few months. It will take years to work out what was the right decision and how many extra people died in those months and years off the virus. Because that's the real number you have to look at. What's the extra number of people who died? Um, I think there's lots of confusion about coronavirus at the moment. One confusion, is whether people are dying with it or from it. And so we hear news all the time that, you know, 200, 300, 400 people have died from coronavirus, but a lot of these people are gravely ill. Um, yeah. a, a majority, in fact, are gravely ill people. Um, they're often quite old. They're, you know, they're late stage cancer patients or people with extreme respiratory problems. It's questionable whether coronavirus is the thing that caused their death. It might be the thing that pushed them over the edge, but it's not it's not necessarily the thing that caused their death. It could be the disease that they'd had 10 years prior to that. So um, there's lots of confusion, questions about how how grave the illness is, um, how much of an impact it's having on people, how far it has spread. And we won't know the answers to those questions for quite a long time. Uh, but I think the biggest question hanging over Europe right now is who's making the right decision. Is it the Netherlands and Sweden who are carrying on with life relatively normally, not entirely mm -hmm. normally, but relatively normally? Or is it France, Italy and Britain who have brought economic life to a standstill? So we the, the jury's out. I know, yeah. I think, I, I, my instinct is that Sweden and the Netherlands are taking the right road, but that could be wrong. Well, they've also got much smaller and less dense populations, yeah. haven't they? So whatever... You know, maybe they wash their hands. <laughs> maybe they'll save them. Who knows? So, um, it, I, I just don't know what's going to happen with coronavirus. I've got my husband home. I've got my four children home. Um, we're getting on all right, actually. Uh, nobody's killed anybody yet in the house. Um, it's only week so one. It's only week. Well, no, we've been we've been in isolation for three weeks now because two oh, of my yeah. children had symptoms. Oh, yeah, okay. but I don't had it actually uh, one had a dry cough and he was a bit breathless but he could have just had flu i mean yeah. i think this is the other thing isn't it we don't really know how many people here no that's a really important point we we don't know who i mean i i meet people all the time who said oh i've had it i had it you know a couple of months ago and i'm sure they didn't but but having said that a lot of people my instinct is that a lot of people have got it 
a lot of people have either got it or had it. And there was that interesting study from Oxford University, which which was poo-pooed very quickly by the media. And maybe it is wrong, I don't know. But there was that Oxford study which said that they think far, far more people have got it than we thought. Um, which kind of makes sense because, you know, when you hear the numbers, when you hear that, uh, I don't know, 20,000 people have had it and a thousand people have died. That sounds really scary because it means the death rate is very high. But the reason we only know that a certain number of people have had it in the UK is because we're only testing people in hospitals who yeah. are great, who are very ill. Um, we haven't yet got national testing to find, you know, there could be a million people in the country who've had it and either had very mild symptoms or were asymptomatic. So they didn't know they had it at all. Yeah. Um, so that's and then can we go back out if i've and had then it, we can go back then out and go back out i i actually think that for most people the the, the best outcome in this is that it is if you've already had it and it was fairly mild or asymptomatic and then there's talk of giving these people certificates so that they are allowed back out into the world i actually think something like that even though it sounds incredibly like something out of a young adult dystopian <laughs> novel that you need a, a, a disease past to go into normal life Mm. That would at least be a step forward because it means that hopefully fairly large numbers of people could get back out into the world and start making things and producing things and being productive again. Because uh, if we don't do that soon, then I think we are underestimating how serious the economic wreckage will be. Well, how much does that cost? How much are the testing kits? They're supposed to be quite expensive at the moment, aren't they? They can't well, be that two... expensive. Well, there's two kinds. There's the one um, that they're using on frontline staff now, which just says, have you got it? Do you have the disease right now? And the reason they're using that on frontline staff, of course, is because if you've got it, then you should go home and not go into a hospital. But then there's the other test, which is the antibody test, which is the test that tells you if you've ever had it. Because obviously, if you've had it, your cells will change a little bit and you will develop mm. antibodies. And so they can they know if you've had it, even if you had it a month ago or whenever. It's the antibodies test that we need. And I think we need to test millions and millions of people, which is perfectly doable. If we can, um, you know, take millions of people out of work and pay them £2,500 a month for three months, mm -hmm. then surely yeah. we can develop an antibody test and, and get it to, uh, you know, not necessarily 66 million people, but at least 20 million. So that would give us a good snapshot of where the nation is at. I really think that has to be the key project because then we'll know how widespread the disease is, how many people have had it and have moved on, and then get those mm. people back into the world so that they can start running society again. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's really lovely to talk to you. I knew it would be great. And you were my first guest, so thank you very Good. much indeed. I'm very <laughs> charmed. thank you. Cheers, Brendan. Bye.